You're listening to Below the Radar, a knowledge mobilization project recorded out of 312 Maine. This podcast is produced by SFU's Van City Office of Community Engagement. Below the Radar brings forward ideas to encourage meaningful exchanges across communities. Each episode, we interview guests on topics ranging from environmental and social justice, arts, culture, community building, and urban issues. This podcast is recorded on the unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. Hello, I'm Rachel Wong, and today on Below the Radar, we are joined by Geraldine Denning and Simon Elmer. Together, they make up Architects for Social Housing, a community interest company from London, England, that organizes working collectives for individual projects. In this episode, Am Johal talks to the Architects for Social Housing about socialist architecture and why these principles should be pursued in order to combat the housing crisis that we currently face. Welcome to Below the Radar. Uh, we're really uh, excited to have Geraldine Denning and Simon Elmer uh, with us. After nearly five years of operation, Architects for Social Housing takes its fellowship with 221A Gallery here in Vancouver in order to re- reflect and re-strategize around the civic housing crisis that has afflicted London and other cities in the world and landing down particularly here in the corrupt real estate racket of Vancouver. As I like to say, they're going to be working on a writing project here. Uh, welcome, Geraldine and Simon. Hi. Hi, thanks Thanks for having us. Great. So uh, one of the things that you're going to be talking about is this notion of a socialist architecture. Uh, What do you you mean by that? Good question. I think that's what we're here to to find out in a way, kind of writing about it. We created this phrase. What it it isn't is socialist architecture. So it's not referring to architecture under, say, the the GDR in Germany or behind the Iron Curtain. It's something that we're trying to promote and we're trying to find out what it is. I guess it comes out of um, the five years of our practice in London um, as architects and also as, 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 uh, um, I guess, lobbyists for changes in housing policy. Um, I guess like a lot of cities, the housing situation in London is highly politicized. And the very practical and logical solutions that we design solutions that we've come up to the crisis in housing affordability there have been uh, generally refused and rejected. And we've realized through that that we have to engage in changing policy, but also in changing practices as well. At the moment, London housing policy is based on a a bunch of fallacies, (laughs) kind of economic models which really don't apply to the nature of what is a global housing crisis, the financialization of housing. Um, And the kind of resistances to that are based around ideas like human rights, around um, the ethics of the individual, all of which we've found, we've seen, are inadequate to offer um, either resistance or an alternative. So we want to ground this idea of a socialist architectural practice in precisely that, in social practices, which embraces the totality of the, to put it formally, the economic, social and environmental dimension of the housing crisis. Yeah, I suppose this is very much about reflection on the work that we've been doing and trying to formulate a set of both ways in which we can practice within the existing sort of capitalist structure, but also hopefully allow those practices which we've kind of identified to inform the changes in that structure. So it's a sort of twofold 
exploration, I suppose. One which is about trying to encourage uh, better forms of practice, but then at the same time, those practices promoting change, but also uh, the lobbying promoting sort of more, more policy-related change as well. So it's kind of trying to explore those two sides of of an architectural practice yeah i mean clearly there's like a, a built-in uh critique of uh the profession or the practice of architecture itself i really love the image uh that you circulated uh for the the one of the talks that are that are happening while you're here which is you know why do architects wear black uh, because they're the morticians of the working <laughs> class so wondering um if you can talk a little bit about uh, what you see as uh, the crisis of contemporary architecture, at least your relationship to it. Yeah, I think when we started off um, in 2015, um, it actually wasn't our idea. It was a, a group of anarchists who'd occupied a council estate, which was under threat of demolition. And they went and targeted one of the actual architectural practice, um, which was designing its redevelopment, which would lead to enormous loss of homes for social rent. Um, and we thought that's a good idea. Um, the the conversation in the UK, I guess like it is everywhere, is very one-sided. Um, local authorities aren't listening. Developers certainly aren't listening. We thought architects may, because architects, kind of like doctors, have something like a Hippocratic Oath. They have a code of practice, which they have to follow. Um, and once upon a time, architects had a social um, agenda, I think. Certainly in the UK in the post-war period, when a lot of these estates were built, um, when we had the kind of the uh, the instigation of the welfare state, architects were very much at the heart of that. And the council estates they built weren't simply about blocks of uh, architecture or, or real estate to house people. They're about a vision of how people can live together in communities, in cities, and so on and so forth. Um, and we're very eager to, one of our um, agendas is to recover, reclaim the social and political dimension of architecture. So in the early days, and we might do it again actually this year, um, we went after architects and architectural prizes in particular. Uh, things like the Sterling Prize, which is the biggest prize in the UK, which is meant to be handed out to the architecture which has contributed most to the history of architecture in, in, in the UK. And in the early years, they were kind of handing it out to appalling structures, one of which was um, Neo Bankside, which is appalling kind of... Uh, uh, neoliberal kind of development, which built all its ho uh, affordable housing off-site. Another one was actually an estate de demolition program. When we went after them, it got a huge amount of press because nobody had targeted really architects in the way that we did before. Um, and at the first, the architectural profession thought, "Well, wow, this is something interesting," and they kind of were like, "Man, isn't, it, isn't this interesting?" People think we're important because architects in the UK are very much out of the building industry. I think only two percent or something of um, buildings in, in the UK are actually designed by architects. Um, but as we began to sort of um, uh, present alternatives, there was a kind of an implicit threat, well, not an explicit threat, to their commissions. And there's been a kind of a turn against us as well. But certainly calling on architects, individual architects and practices, to, um, to reclaim this space has found an echo, certainly. Yeah, and I think as a young architect growing up, and a lot of my peers, you go through a sort of an education system which is more or less sort of has a potential some sort of social engagement you start coming out into commercial practice which is 98 percent of practice in the uk is commercial and there's almost zero kind of social or political content uh, or opportunities within those practices there's just, just no conversation there was no debate and a lot of my more socially engaged colleagues just got out of the architectural professional together um, and so you know as I started to become more and more aware of the sort of complicity in the role of architects within 
what I saw, what we saw happening to the loss of public land, public facilities, public space, public housing in London and the UK, there was a kind of recognition that, well, if we're complicit in it, then there is, that we have an agency in that and we can choose how, where to place that agency. So part of this is definitely part of our kind of, uh, our imagination, our, our vision is to try and engage um, a change in the architectural profession within architectural education. It's got to start with education. And, and interestingly, a lot of the people that come and offer us sort of to want to come and work with us are young architects who are themselves at the, he- at the hard end of the housing crisis, themselves priced out of the cities that they're working in, are kind of appalled at the nature of the kind of working conditions that some of them are working under and don't see any opportunities to get out of that. So they often, they're the ones that are coming to us to offer their time and their expertise and their knowledge and their, and their passion and their anger um, to, to try and imagine a different uh, future for architects to take a different role in the cities than they are today. Now, in, inside of uh, the architectural profession, depending on which country or region you're in, uh, there seems to be in the sort of uh, professional uh, practices in order to maintain the designation, there's various disciplinary methods that can be used to keep people in line, slap them on the hand, etc. So you work within a particular frame. Uh, but what are some of these uh, practices that you've seen used in, in London or, or you've come across in your research? I mean, the, the codes that we have... Um, so the Architects Registration Board is the one that kind of sets a code of practice. Um, and over the last sort of 10 or 20 years, they have got increasingly weak. Not only weak in terms of their teeth, in terms of their actual uh, um, agency, uh, but, but in terms of the actual content. I mean, they're, they, what, so I think it's code five, a standard five, which used to be addressing that the, the, there was an obligation for the architect to um, have some consideration for the people that would potentially use um, the product of their services. The word people has now been removed altogether and they only have an obligation to the environment. Um, and so, you know, so tracking the codes, tracking the, the emphasis and the lack of emphasis and the changes of emphasis um, is really interesting. And it reflects, to some extent, the kind of commercialization of, of, the, um, uh, of the practices that we're seeing. I mean, one of the practices, for example, one of the ones that Simon mentioned, uh, an estate regeneration scheme at the Aylesbury estate, um, the residents on that estate took the, uh, uh, the the regeneration to um, was it a uh, to a form of tribunal uh, to an inquiry, and the regeneration was the, the council was found to be in, in um, contravention of the residents' human rights. So you would imagine that an architect's practice that is involved directly with something which is in con- contravention of the human rights would you would think that might trigger something in terms of the architect's code, but absolutely nothing. Funnily enough, or maybe not funnily enough, the head of that architectural practice is or was the head of the RIBA. Um, so the, Royal Institute of British Architects. Royal Institute of British Architects, sorry. So, so the, the, the idea that there is any sort of um, code of conduct that has any real meaning at all has is, is, is sort of disappeared. I think also the outside of the kind of the, uh, uh, the codes and the restrictions, the biggest means of keeping people in line is their own housing situation. Um, if you're a young architect who's just graduated and you go and work for a big practice, um, because we live in what Thatcher called a homeowning democracy, um, and there are no rent caps, our private rental market is absolutely absurd. Um, the housing policy is actually to demolish what social housing there is, council housing and social housing. There's a very limited amount of um, housing provision for someone like a young architect. 
Um, so their economic, the fact that they are financially tied to these practices and the projects they're doing keeps them in line. The, and this is really why we're, um, why we're insisting on this idea of a socialist arch architecture as a form of practice. Um, the Real Institute of British Architects, when we started sort of targeting them and raising this issue, which strangely really hadn't been raised in the architectural profession about the state demolition, um, they responded with a text called The Ethics of a State Regeneration. Regeneration means anything but that. It's demolition and redevelopment. Um, and it ultimately kind of said it's down to the individual ethics of the architect. Now, if you're a junior architect and you're working with something like HDA Design, who worked on the um, on the Ellsbury Estate Regeneration, um, you've got a rent. You've got rent to pay. You've got enormous student debt. You're kept in line by your own personal financial relation to the crisis of housing affordability. So your limitations, your 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 uh, your agency within that is very limited. And as Geraldine said, most of the young architects who come and worked with us, they offer some of them, you know, a lot of them offer their labour for free because they're so appalled, but they're also so restricted as practitioners by what they can do within the current um, market, uh, architectural market, the profession. Hmm. Margaret Thatcher, interesting you should mention her. <laughs> we just know her as Maggie Thatcher, yeah, Milk yeah, Snatcher. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, there, there is a, a strong legacy of social housing uh, in the UK, but there have also been really long periods of this neoliberalism and um, uh, uh, pulling back of uh, support around development of new social housing and also sort of privatizing what was there. And I'm wondering how you'd characterize some of the discussions happening in London right now. Well, I think to some extent, actually, um, the questions around social housing aren't all new. Um, when we look back to the earliest forms of social housing, which was coming out potentially out of some form of uh, what was called slum clearances. Um, and then what, what we were seeing happening when they're celebrated at a lot of these estates and the, and the, and the projects that came out of them, but what you would see happening on those, those particular uh, uh, circumstances was that very small percentage of the people that lived in the original communities were able to afford to come and move into the new estates. So that even embedded in some of the earliest forms of social housing um, was already embedded a form of social cleansing. Um, and I think what we're seeing now is it, it's, in a, it's a different form, but actually it's the same practices that are happening every time uh, a kind of so-called regeneration, you know, the same language is being used around slum claims, overcrowding, you know, the poverty of construction, the, 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 the quality of the architecture, all those same arguments actually, which were used, you know, in the 20s and the 30s and the 40s and the 50s and 60s are now being applied to current housing estates so the kind of conversations are not necessarily new they're different they're slightly different in the form they take but i think the ultimate uh, narrative is actually quite a continuous one yeah. i mean what's what's going on particularly in london because of the land values there or the potential land values um, but across the across england wales and the uk is a form of enclosure we've got a long history in in the uk of land enclosure uh, which kind of goes back, you know, hundreds of years, a thousand years. Even. We know a bit about it because it was I'm brought sure over here <laughs> in a colonial. One of our, one of our great <laughs> colonial. Yeah. Um, and really, the the estate uh, demolition program is another form of enclosure of a privatization of land, privatization of housing provision. Um, and I think the this this sort of golden age, as we kind of look back on it now, in the post-war period, where 
um, an enormous amount of homes, council housing, we call it, and you call it social housing, um, was provided. I think we had in 1979, the year that actually got in, we had something like 40, 40 something, 42% of the population of the UK lived in council housing. It's a huge amount of people. It's now about 7%. And there's about another 8% which are in housing association properties, which is sort of somewhere in between, and a lot of which are actually stock transferred from council housing. So the, um, the, housing, the crisis of housing affordability is not merely a, um, an economic phenomenon. It's also an ideological one. Um, at the moment, developers, politicians, think tanks, academics, anyone who's got anything to gain from the housing crisis are working very hard to characterize this post-war period as a blip <laughs> within the great triumph of capitalism and to argue that the only and definitely the most successful um, form of housing provision is the market, which goes against everything that history told, tells us. There has always been a housing crisis. It's, in, it's endemic to capitalism. If you go to read Friedrich Engels in, 19, in 1872, he talks about the housing crisis. It's Capitalism needs a housing crisis. There needs to be a, a market niche, if you like. Council housing does one thing. It does a number of things. One of the things, it houses people. But what it does is it threatens the profits of developers. In the UK, we don't really have much industry left, in, any heavy industry left. We're a service economy, and most of our wealth, something like three and a half times our GDP, is in our property market. And nothing can be allowed to threaten that. Things like rent caps, you know, they've, they've, they've got them in Vancouver, haven't you? You've got them in Berlin, you've got them in different cities. They don't really work. They do a little bit. They don't really work. The biggest, I hear it's the, uh, percentage increases. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the only, the most efficient, the best way to reduce rental prices and house prices is to provide an alternative, which is state-funded state, state and state-built. Um, that's the only way to address it. So there's an enormous, huge campaign, ideological campaign, um, which everyone's bought into, really, and unfortunately the architectural profession, that marketized housing provision is the only way forward. And not part of that campaign is also the, the myths um, around housing, um, and they're so well ingrained. So one of the ones being... Uh, the myth of supply and demand, that somehow if you provide more, even if those things are homes for market sale, then eventually that will trickle down and will will even out the the uh, um, the so-called bubble or whatever. And we just know that's not true. That's never been proven to be the case. And interestingly, what we are seeing is that the opposite is true. The more you build, actually, that pushes prices up. There's a phrase which is related to, um, there was a, a piece of research done in the 70s around um, uh, motorways, which was called induced demand. So the idea was, oh, we need to build bigger motorways to reduce the traffic. What, what you actually saw happening was you build bigger roads and the traffic increases. That's exactly what we're seeing happening in housing. Um, and yet I think that, that, that goes against all the things that we're, taught, we're told, uh, these very basic principles of kind of uh, marketization and, and, and capitalism. Um, and yet I think it's so part of what we're also trying to do is to kind of really to understand the truth behind these myths and to try and expose them. Because until you expose those core myths, you're never going to be able to address the problem. But there's no interest in exposing them because the people who are in the media industry are also those people that are profiting from the so-called crisis. Mm. I think also that goes back to why we're one of the reasons we're here in Vancouver. Um, 
we've you know we've spoken we've gone to different conferences to talk to people about the crisis of housing affordability in, in, in new york in toronto in paris in barcelona in berlin in london um in melbourne in sydney it's across the world and in london it's always about local conditions you know london's too low we need to rise the housing density and stuff like that or we need to expand beyond its borders there was lo- the, the the origins of the crisis are always attributed to particular situations but in fact all these cities across the world have got very very different situations different uh, kind of typology different landscape, even different economies in a way. Um, but they all share the same housing crisis. And the origins of that is the, uh, the situation of global capital, the nature of financialization of housing as a commodity. Um, and this is common globally. Um, and that's why models, economic models like supply and demand have got absolutely no descriptive purchase on the nature of the financialization of housing and how marketized housing can offset that. And that's why it's interesting for us to come to Vancouver and look at a completely different city in a very different history, different set, and see that you've still got the same housing crisis. You've still got hundreds of thousands of people living on the streets right next to huge upmarket, um, I presume empty, largely empty, or not occupied by the people who own them, um, um, uh, residential developments. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, we had uh, Sam Stein here uh, recently talking about his book, Gentrification and the Real Estate State. And, uh, and it's not just capital itself, but also the kind of uh, policies that are put in place by planning and zoning and these types of things that exacerbate it. For a very long time in Vancouver, we didn't have limits to donations at the civic level. So you could cut a check for a million dollars if you wanted to. And so the kind of um, what might be called the regulatory capture of the planning process by development interests is very much at play. And we've had uh, big global uh, events that very much supported tourism and development. So Expo 86 is a, is a big one. And the 2010 Olympics, of course, added and exacerbated existing uh, development paths. So, uh, you know, very interesting to hear you talk about these, these different places because I, there's there's been some recent uh, taxation, other methods to slow down the the flow of capital. We've also had the phenomenon of um, money laundering as well. So it's an active public inquiry uh, underway. Um, one of the things I wanted to, to, to talk about, you, you, uh, you have a critique of uh, this notion of the right to the city. And um, uh, people like uh, Henri Lefebvre have written about it. Uh, there was a well-known article by David Harvey in New Left Review. Uh, but then it really got kind of picked up by the kind of NGO sector, the human rights framework, and circulated in various ways with different uh, definitions. And it's been used by activists here locally as well. But wondering if you can talk a little bit about what you perceive as a critique of this notion of the right to the city. I think... Um Human rights are a set of principles which don't take into account how they are implemented as practices. Um, they rely on um, a legal framework um, to uh, you know, defend people's human rights or to insist on those rights um, to, you know, for instance, a right to housing or something. Um, <clears throat> but the legal framework, we've seen this again and again, is subject to both economic and political pressures, which always overcome the human rights and there's lots of examples of that which are inside here um, certainly in the UK but around the place um, I also think human rights are um, I mean, the, the analogy I always use is Kafka's story about before the law the man who sits before the law waiting his whole life to gain access to the law and then he dies and he says to the cakekeeper why is it that nobody else came along 
gaining access to the law. And the gatekeeper says, because this doorway was made for you, and I'm going to shut it. And I think that's a good metaphor of what human rights are. It's something we sit before waiting for them to be enacted. But human rights, it's not a failure of human rights to account for how they are implemented, how they are, how principles are turned into practice. I think it's their role. And that's why we oppose, in many ways, the idea of a socialist architectural practice to the purely principles of human rights. Human rights are great as principles, but they don't do anything. And I actually think they take up, I don't think this, I know this, particularly in London, um, I recently wrote a paper about a whole range of campaigns, housing campaigns, which have appealed to various forms of human rights, various housing rights as well, rights to transfer, rights to management, all this sort of stuff. And ultimately, they all get up and eventually the High Court says no. Why? Because they're under political and economic pressures to do so. Um, it's not only not worked, it's taken up a huge amount of people's energy and money as well. You know, they have to crowdfund for lawyers and so forth. And they could be doing a whole lot more. And I think that's kind of the function of human rights under capitalism. It's a kind of facade of accountability, of democracy, of liberalism, and all this sort of stuff. Um, human rights are great when there's a lot of fat on the, on the, on the skewer. That's, I don't know if that's a phrase. Just made it up there. Um, we're not. We're in lean times at the moment. Um, liberalism is going out the window. The middle classes, uh, um, they, they're, they're getting, you know, Engels says the only time people talk about the housing crisis is when it affects the middle classes. Um, we're in lean times and human rights are inadequate as a model of um, social justice, but certainly of affordable and secure housing provision. Yeah, I mean, without, without, I mean, it's a great as an idea, without a legal framework to support them, it's just words. Um, and you can shout those words as much as you like, but unless you actually have a way of engaging them in policy, then they're meaningless. You know, you can say you've got a right to housing, but what does it mean? It doesn't actually mean anything. So I suppose if there is a, a campaign to make those human rights into policy, then that sounds like a great idea. Um, but it's not good enough just to shout and say we have human rights, you know, we have a right to housing. It's like, well, you might have it, but you don't actually have it because the right isn't enshrined in law. Um, and it has to be enshrined in law to make to, to give it any validity. I mean, that goes back to the, the, the question about the, the, the Canadian Housing um, Act that's come out, which I think is... The, I, I heard that it was about enshrining potentially some of those things in legislation, but then when you look for it, is there any actual legislation there which can follow through? And, and, and certainly in the UK, there isn't any which actually follows through in terms of the broader picture of a right to housing. Um, I mean, we've got, we've got, I think we've still got quite a lot of faith in the state. There's a kind of a way to think about you know, the state now simply being a kind of an, um, an administrative um, body of capitalism. But the state is still very powerful, and a lot of policy, things like the right to buy, which is a terrible policy invented by Maggie Thatcher, um, which was meant to be you know, getting people to empower themselves and take possession of their own homes. Actually, 40% of the homes bought through right to buy, subsidized by the state, are now owned by private landlords who are often renting them back to councils to, to address their housing problem. Um, things like Airbnb, okay, which is a great idea, which has had enormous created huge housing problems across, you know, across the world, I imagine in Vancouver as well, um, certainly in the UK, Barcelona and so on. It's actually a good idea. We use it, but it's been abused because it hasn't been properly legislated. Um, there's the word socialism, which we use proudly, <laughs> um, 20 years ago, 10 years ago, maybe in the UK, if you use that, you'd get locked up, not literally, but you know, it's not a word you could use. You get laughed at or you're kind of a mad leftist. That word's coming back in. Um, and I think it's, I'm trying to say, I think it's important that we don't wait for this kind of uh, 
this this always just over the horizon revolution or even that a social democrat government to get in let alone a socialist government there's always a kind of deferral of agency to an in infinitely deferred future um, we know because we've been doing it for five years under very difficult very difficult neoliberal conditions of policy and economics and finance that it is possible to practice socialist architecture um, and it's not just architecture you can do it in all sorts of uh, forms of practice in law and, and so on um, as activists as housing as residents and so on and I think it's important to understand uh, to believe to know to work out how to not defer socialism to the future, but to make it something about your contemporary practice under the conditions of, of, um, of, of capitalism. Um, and I think human rights is not about that. I think it's an amelioration of capitalism. We want to change it from below, if you like. And housing is a good place to start. I mean, that goes back to one of our early uh, kind of slogans, which is architecture is always political. The T-shirt that I'm wearing today. Um, and this was about sort of instilling, not just among architects, but among architects, but also, you know, in, in the whole kind of housing movement, I think, in a way, um, to think about the practices that you operate on a daily basis. You know, it's not about waiting for every four years to vote in the next guy who's going to be the same as the last guy with a different name. But it's about understanding that everything you do is political, certainly within the architectural uh, uh, kind of industry, within the building industry. And I think that recognition, I think, is part of this idea of, you know, a socialist architecture is about being aware of the decisions that you make, the relationships that you have, the people that you're working with, the way in which you work. Um, all of that stuff is political. Um, and I think there's a sort of shying away from it because political is a kind of dirty word, really. I mean, politics is definitely a dirty thing, and po but, but, but with the capital P. But it's, you know, it's, 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 it has to be recognised, I think, in order to, for things to change. Yeah, so you're going to be here in Vancouver on this residency uh, this month. Can you tell me a little bit about the the writing project that you're that you're working on? Yeah, we um, um, we actually had a contact with two two one a back in just a few months after we first set up uh, in 2015, and we've stayed in contact. And they very generously offered us this this kind of fellowship, which entails a residency here over a month. And uh, for a long time, we've been so busy. <laughs> We're kind of running on this uh, travelator. Um, and we've been waiting for a long time to have a chance, particularly the two of us, to sit down together and, and kind of reflect on what we're doing um, and we want to we are in the, in the process of producing uh, the draft of a book called for a socialist architecture and it has kinds of lots of subtitles like under capitalism or for a socialist architecture ask these questions and <clears throat> we're writing this as we're here over the the month of our residency and the residency is going to be punctuated by these four workshops um, which we're holding at 221a um, and they're going to be looking at different contexts, I guess, themes, strategies uh, within what, what we understand a socialist architecture to be. So the first one, which we're going to be holding this afternoon, is the social. The second one is on um, the environmental. The third one on the economic. And the fourth one on the political. Um, so we're going to be kind of talking to people and listening to people about within these kind of frameworks. Um, and hopefully at the end of it, well, we are going to come out with a book. And the book itself is its not going to be an academic book. Um, it's not going to be describing the horrors of the housing crisis and trying to analyse it. It's going to be offering practical advice 
um, we've kind of it's going to have some sort of theoretical certainly some theoretical basis about the necessity for a socialist architecture so it will have things like a critique of human rights it will have um, obviously a critique of neoliberal housing policy um, but it will also be a very practical book in which you would be so first of all would be kind of a providing a, a kind of a a demystifier on kind of housing terminology and policies and stuff. Uh, we do enormous amount of um, advisory kind of work with residents, groups who ring us up and sort of contact us and say, can you help us with this? And a lot of it is simply decoding this language for them. But the key part of it is a set of questions in a way, um, which residents can ask of the various agents who are trying to evict them or demolish their homes or offer them, you know, new housing and so on. Um, but also questions for architects to ask of themselves, of their clients and so forth. And ultimately of politicians, councillors and policy makers. Like if you really are interested in finding some alternative to what is quite clearly a disastrous neoliberal housing policy, what sort of questions should you be asking? So that's how we kind of understanding it. And I think what's important is it, it, when we're looking at this, the whole process, or like a sort of a development process, um, there are many, many agents who are part of that process. Um, and so I think what we've tried to do is really expand this uh, series of kind of interrogations into the whole process and all of those agents and the roles that they take within that, of which, so the, you know, the, the, the client will be one, the, the resident will be an agent of that process, the um, lawyer will be an agent of that process, the architect, everybody involved in the, manu in, in, in the construction of the, uh, of the project. And I think the idea is that you know, each person, each agent of uh, each sort of architectural, or each agent of that process will find themselves within this book and will be able to understand, well, okay, well, if, if this is my role, how can I engage with this process in a different way? We always get people coming to us and say, well, what can I do, what can I do? Um, so architects asking, what can I do? Planners sort of saying, well, what can I do? And politicians and, and everybody, there is always a, a, a thing that somebody can do. I mean, part of it is also looking at the culture, the role of culture. Um, so artists kind of thinking, well, what can I do? Filmmakers, what can I do? Well, actually, there's always, this absolutely is something that you can do. So I think the idea is to try and paint a picture of this landscape, this sort of development landscape, and so that everybody can, some, everybody can identify a role for themselves within that. Okay, I'm a teacher, what can I do? Well, okay, there's, there's ways in which you can engage with that process in a really positive way. Um, part of that is about educating people into what that process is. Um, and it's about how you can uh, engage with that process, with the skills and the position and, that you have, um, and try and improve it and change it. Geraldine, Simon, thank you so much for uh, joining us on Below the Radar. Thank you very much. Thank you to Geraldine Denning and Simon Elmer from Architects for Social Housing for joining us on this week's episode. You can learn more about their work and practice at architectsforsocialhousing.co.uk. You can also check out the research that they're doing with 221A on their website, 221A.ca. We've left links to both of these sites in our episode description below. A big thank you to our production team, which includes myself as well as Maria Cecilia Saba, to Davis Steele for our theme music, and to you for tuning in. We'll catch you next time on Below the Radar. <laughs>